Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. At 10.20 p.m. on August 15, 1969, Ravi Shankar, then and still the most famous practitioner of the sitar in Indian classical music, takes the stage at Woodstock. It's arguably the zenith of Indian music's popularity in the West, with musicians like the Beatles, the Birds, and Led Zeppelin embracing elements of Indian music. But this was merely the middle point of Shankar's artistic development, nor was it a personal highlight for him in a long and storied career. For many musicians in several different genres, both in and outside of India, Shankar is the most important messenger for the ideas and concepts of Indian music. Indian Sun, The Life and Music of Ravi Shankar by Oliver Krask is the first full biography on Shankar's life, charting his musical journey, from accompanying his older brother, the dancer Uday Shankar, on world tours at a young age, through the height of his worldwide acclaim in the late 60s, to the end of his life as the most respected performer of Indian classical music. Oliver Krask is a writer and editor with a long-standing interest in Indian music. He first met Ravi Shankar in 94 and worked with Shankar on his autobiography. Krask is also the author of Rock Faces, the world's top rock and roll photographers and their greatest images, a survey of leading music photographers. Today, Oliver and I talk about the life of Ravi Shankar and the many ways his music was important both in and outside of India throughout the 20th century. We'll talk about, about, we'll talk about the fundamentals of Indian classical music and whether India's music plays an important role in the country's cultural soft power. So, Oliver, thank you so much for joining me today. I thought if you could start by explaining the fundamentals of the Indian classical music that Ravi Shankar played and how it differs from the traditional elements of Western music. Thank you, uh, Nicholas, and um, thanks so much for asking me onto the podcast. Um, Indian music, uh, it does differ in many ways from Western music, and I think that um, this has been one of the things that has both made it difficult for uh, people from other societies, Western societies, but also given uh, a great appeal to Indian music. Um, I think w- without wanting to be overly um, technical musicologically, um, what you have obviously is a range of different different instrument instrumentation. Uh, the instrument that Ravi Shankar was most famous for was the sitar, uh, which is a uh, it's it's technically it's a long necked lute with nineteen strings and movable frets and uh, all kinds of features that that make it give it its very distinctive sound. Uh, we have the tabla drums, the, uh, the most famous accompanying drums, which is a, a two piece uh, drum, um, and we have usually a drone played by the tampura in the background. That would be the typical lineup for a Ravi Shankar recital. Um, so. Uh, what you find automatically is there's a the real emphasis on solo playing in Indian music um, over the orchestral ensemble, um, and the music itself we have um, an emphasis on solo med- melody lines, um, uh, playing you know playing improvisation rather than composition, 
uh, there's all these very different aspects of music. And something that he often talked about himself was that um, the emphasis is on melody and rhythm in the music uh, and not on harmony. And this is something that's that is perhaps the most alien thing about Indian music in many ways is we're so used to harmony in Western music. Um, but you have almost none in, in, in classical Indian music. Um, and uh, these are all things that, you know, we can, we can explore through Ravi Shankar's own work. Um, but, you know, what ultimately he did, he's most famous in, for a lot of people with what he did in presenting Indian music to the West and, to, and, and often, people often talk about his collaborations with Western artists. Um, but I think what's, what's really, really striking about him is how he kind of held to the fundamentals of Indian music. I mean, he, everything he wrote was in these um, two Indian concepts of ragas and talas. Um, and uh, I don't know if you want me to go into those now. Well, it might be good to kind of go into a little bit about, about what these things are. Yeah. So um, I, it's really striking that, you know, we're used to the idea of artists fusing, uh, you know, playing fusion and, and um, bringing two traditions together. Uh, and sort of to, to create a third tradition. But really, most of the time, he was playing Indian music. He was just using different instruments. And he was playing in these melody forms. A raga is a very precise melody form, uh, which dictates, for example, the, the, the kind of patterns you can play a, a melody in as you go up or down the scale. And, and, and um, they use many, many different scales, not just the Western major and minor. And they're, they're very, very distinctive. They, they kind of have a, a kind of feel to each raga. Uh, they're often associated with times of the day or sometimes seasons of the year. Uh, and there's a kind of, yeah, there's a sort of feeling to them. They might be, one might be particularly um, playful or uh, meditative or, or, or uh, even erotic or, or, you know, this kind of, there's a different feel to every raga. And so everything he wrote would either be composed or more often improvised within one of these raga forms. And then the second concept is tala, which is the concept of rhythm. Indian classical music, um, it, it, you, you have, everything is based around rhythmic cycles. Once the rhythm comes in, uh, and they're based on these um, really very technically advanced um, rhythmic cycles called talas, uh, the most common would be a 16-beat one called Tintal, and you find that the the, the rhythm, the, the, the cycle repeats throughout a piece. Um, it's rather like 4-4 four, four music. It would be the most com- the closest comparator, um, Tintal, um, but it's more complex than 4-4. Four, four. Um, and then there are all kinds of other ones, and Ravi Shankar, one of the things he was became famous for was playing really complex rhythmic cycles like I don't know, 11 or 13 or 11 and a half beats or, um, it, you know, so there's this wonderful complexity in that, um, which he was really brilliant at himself. So that's a rather long introduction to Indian music from a technical point of view, but hopefully highlighting some of the ways it's rather different from uh, Western music, that emphasis, especially on melody and rhythm in the music um, and solo works over harmony and uh, rather than orchestras and harmonies and, uh, ensembles and so on, um, but we should come back to that because Ravi Shankar actually did work in ensembles that was rather um, uh, radical, actually, in Indian music. Well, maybe let's get into that a little bit. I mean, so so you mentioned that 
Ravi Shankar is, is, is perhaps most well-known outside of India, unsurprisingly, for his work outside of India, um, you know, working with various – working with and influencing various Western musicians. Yeah, yeah. But I guess – but before we get into that, and there's a lot to talk about in that, um, how important is Ravi Shankar to the development of Indian music in India, in the Indian context? Well, I think he is. I think he's actually rather undervalued in um, that the contribution he made, um, not least in India itself. I think I, you know one of the themes of my book, um, Indian Sun, uh, which partly inspires this, the title, is that you know we we shouldn't forget that uh, you, you know this is this is yes he was an amazing global musician, but he was at heart very much an Indian musician, um, and. Um, he did. I mean, there are many different aspects. I, I touched on his work on ensembles and orchestration. That was really almost unknown um, in Indian music, and he did start doing that in the fifties. Uh, well, even earlier, actually, through film schools, but especially in the fifties, he started. Uh, it was a real passion of his to sort of explore orchestration. But going back a bit further, he learned from a, a very traditional and very great guru, Alauddin Khan. Um, Starting in the, in the in the late thirties, um, late nineteen thirties, he learnt Indian music. He learnt sitar. Um, well, he, he learnt, his instrument was sitar, but his his uh, his guru was actually not a sitarist. Um, but he learnt the music from him, and even from there, his, his guru um, was very influential in kind of synthesizing different traditions within Indian music. And um, so, the form of a concert that Ravi Shankar would play. Uh, which has now become very, very, really what we think of as an Indian music concert. It starts with a slow meditative alap section. Um, it, then a pulse is added and then rhythm is added and it gets more and more exciting. It goes through these phases called jaw and jala. And then you end up with these improvisations on a section called gut. So there's these different sections and they actually are like a synthesis from different places. Um, from different traditions in India. Um, the, and so that's actually really, really important. I think it's not really appreciated that what he and uh, also his fellow um, student, uh, his fellow disciple of Aladdin Khan, Ali Akbar Khan, who was the son of Aladdin Khan, um, uh, he, those two of them really did so much to kind of promote this kind of structure of a, of a music recital. And I think that's underappreciated. It, it really came out of that, that, that. It was like a new synthesis that was happening in the 30s and the 40s. So the, the, like the very structure of the concert. And then there are also um, elements like the kind of professionalism that Ravi Shankar brought, um, which I think is really important. The, you know, he, he was a real, uh, you know, he was a master of stagecraft and presentation, which he got actually from his years in the dance troupe, which you mentioned in the, the intro. And I think that's really important at a time when, you know, there was actually not a very long tradition of public concerts in India. Um, and I think that he it was really, really striking. People in India really noticed this, that this was a, you know, you went to a Ravi Shankar concert, it was a real event, you know, and he just did it in, by creating a kind of reverence for the music. You know, it's not like sort of, uh, you know, pyrotechnic shows or something. It's it's really, you know, just creating the right sort of atmosphere of respect. And he would always have incense burning at the side of the stage. You know, he'd have a simple backdrop. Um, 
and there would be a you know beautiful carpet on the stage. The musicians would all sit on the carpet. There would be a kind of you, you, you know um, a lot of thought went into that and suitable lighting. And and you know he was also really rigorous with um, introducing kind of professionalism to audiences uh, in India because as I said there wasn't that much of a tradition um, of of live concerts. And, you know, he insisted on, you know, fixed start times and closing the door at the start of a concert because, you know, well, to this day, you'll still find it. that People will wander in and out of Indian recitals. Um, and, it's you know, it, it, it all sort of tends to undermine the kind of atmosphere a bit. So there's all these different ways that he, you know, he, uh, I think was really important, you know. And, the, and then the one I haven't mentioned yet is actually when in the 50s when he was... Um, Director of Music at All India Radio, he was a great gatekeeper for Indian music and musicians at a time when radio was really new in India. And it was doing the job of introducing all of India to its classical music, um, which was very reasonably based beforehand. And in particular, there's a big divide between North and South India, where they're actually separate systems. But he was a, really important in promoting not only his own music, but all other, you know, loads and loads of other musicians on the public stage, on, 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 the, on, the, on the broadcast, um, on the radio waves. So there's all these ways that he kind of, I think is the most important figure in creating a kind of modern music, classical music culture in India in the 20th century. Yes, I, I, I was going to, to note that one of, the, one of the common themes throughout the biography is Ravi Shankar uh, gently chastising his audiences, whether they were yes. in India or or in the West. Um, another thing that's common throughout the whole book is is uh, Shankar's basically seemingly constant touring, um, and this gets into I think the interaction between his music and and Western music. And there's a lot of different areas where there is this interaction, but I guess could you summarize some of the the key ways that that Indian music and Western music interacted throughout Shankar's life. Yeah, I mean, there was a kind of prehistory of um, connections between, um, you know, India and the rest of the world, musical connections. But broadly speaking, the West didn't know very much before about it. So um, um, I think when he started touring internationally, which was the mid fifties, um, he he, uh, he 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 had a long tour in 1956-57 when he was based in um, London and then, and then in New York. And so he was touring Europe and America. Um, really, it was something rather revelatory to all kinds of audiences. I mean, early on, you find his, his biggest fans tend to be jazz musicians in America and also classical musicians. They're the first to really pick up. And from those earliest encounters, they start being influenced um, by what they're hearing because it's new. And as I talked at the beginning of all these different aspects of the music. Um, and um, so, yeah, you start finding those influences, particularly, for example, the use of drones. People like Lamont Young, who very early on picked up on, um, uh, you, you know, this rather alien sound, um, what was alien at the time. Uh, to Western music, um, uh, except for in folk music, um, so aspects like that become you know come really exciting, and then and the kind of modal structure of Indian music where you don't change um, key, you stay on the same um, on, on the same tonic note throughout a piece, 
So things like that, you know, I think just really appealed. And then, but then you find it also starts cropping up in pop music in the mid fifties, uh, mid sixties. The, the the influence, folk music as well. Um, and I would argue, you know, it's actually a really significant moment when um, Western societies, in particular, are starting to be exposed to music of other cultures from around the world. And you know, there's this sort of opening up of people's minds and ears. And um, I think he's incredibly important in that process. You know that really has led to what is the musical world of, world of today. And I think we, we can't talk about um, Shankar's relationships with Western musicians without mentioning um, George Harrison of the Beatles. Um, and one thing that's clear in, the, in your biography is that this, this truly is a very deep personal friendship. I wonder if you can talk a bit more about, about that relationship. Yeah, it was, it was a gen- very genuine friendship and, um, and a musical friendship. Um, and it lasted, it was lifelong. Um, George Harrison starts to become interested in Indian music suddenly in 1965. Uh, it's actually when he was on the set of the movie Help. And there's a, there's a, there's a rather sort of cringeworthy <laughs> scene in an Indian restaurant where there's a bunch of musicians supposedly playing Indian music. Um, and uh, they're not. And in fact, the only instrument there is a sitar. But he, he, on the set, he picked it up and he became rather fascinated by it. And then along with a lot of people, it just became an obsession with him. Uh, that year, he starts um, uh, trying, to, trying to listen to as much as possible. And you know, he very quickly comes across the name of Ravi Shankar, who by 1965 had been touring in the West for nine years and he's very much the leading representative of Indian music. I mean, he was already playing major concert halls by the late fifties. Um, he was appearing on television and radio, and um, you know, getting getting rave reviews in national newspapers. And so, um, it's no accident that it's Ravi Shankar who's the person that he he picks up on because he was the leading representative. I mean, there were others, but he was the number one. And um, they meet eventually a year later in the summer of 1966 in uh, at a, at a dinner party in, in North London that had been arranged specifically to introduce them. Um, by this time, you know, the Beatles have already recorded Norwegian Wood. They've recorded Love You Too. So the first couple of their songs that have a clear Indian influence on them and Tomorrow Never Knows, of course. Um, but after that, you know, Ravi Shankar starts giving George sitar lessons. They become great friends. George goes out to India for six weeks in late 1966 to learn from him, uh, which is just before they start the Beatles start recording Sergeant Pepper. And there's this suddenly there's this enormous um, fascination with Indian music and Ravi Shankar, and you know he he goes from being successful um, classical artist to being a real sort of a phenomenon, a superstar, and. It's the connection with George Harrison that gives it that extra, that, that sort of massive boost, gives him that massive boost. Um, so you get this, you know, phenomenon where by 1967 he's he's um, playing this incredible show at Monterey Pop Festival. He's Billboard Artist of the Year. He's, um, you know, and 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 Indian culture is everywhere. You know, uh, you know, not only in pop music. Um, but especially in pop music, where all all the musicians seem to be wearing Indian clothes, so, you know, I mean, all these aspects of Indian culture are suddenly very, very fashionable. 
And um, it's a really, when you think about it, it's a really remarkable moment. I think it's, it's hard to think of a, a sort of comparable moment in pop culture um, when the music of one culture is completely mainstreamed into the, the, the you know, the, the pop culture of, of the West. Um, so it's, um, it, you know, he becomes very famous. Uh, their friendship is uh, is very important, but they don't actually start um, recording together f- until 1971. Really, that's the um, they they, they uh, jumping ahead. They play the concert for Bangladesh that year. They they were the co-organizers of that great first charity um, concert uh, in 1971, and. Um, George is tremendously helpful for Ravi's career. He helps uh, Ravi finish a, a documentary movie that he'd made called Raga. He enables a couple of albums to be made in 1973 and 74 with Ravi Shankar and a sort of wonderful collection of musicians. Um, that's Shankar Family and Friends and the Music Festival from India. Um, and and so there's a sort of series of projects they do together in that period, culminating with a tour of uh, a sort of stadium tour of the USA in late 74 uh, with Ravi Shankar and a bunch of Indian musicians being part of really what's like a kind of review or variety bill um, of a George Harrison concert, um, which it, it, I think um, there's a lot going on in that. Um, and um, But it certainly you know signifies something amazing that, that he's playing to these concerts. Uh, these sort of great stadium shows and so on, um, and I think that sort of marks a kind of high water mark. And they 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 kind of finish that tour a bit exhausted, um, and um, neither of them really wanting to do that again. Um, but their their friendship continued, and 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 they you know they constantly saw each other over the years. They returned to recording together in the eighties and the nineties. Uh, there's a wonderful album from '97 called "Chance of India" that George produced, um, and and that's a, that's a lovely sort of return, a musical return of their collaboration, um, and um, the friendship was there all along, right up until George's death in 2001. So, what were Ravi Shankar's feelings about? these kinds of musical interactions and collaborations, not just with people like George Harrison, but also with classical musicians, sorry, Western classical musicians like Yuri Manuhin or Western classical composers like Philip Glass. Um, the book notes several points where he seems a bit uncomfortable with these connections or attempts to fuse Western and Indian forms, though he does seem to become more comfortable with them as, as he ages, as, as time goes on. And as you've noted, he, he does kind of innovate in terms of um, bringing Indian music into on, ensemble work. So I guess kind of what, what were Shankar's kind of overall feelings about these sorts of musical connections, musical interactions? I think the main thing was he was very excited by them. And, you know, he, uh, he, he was, um, you know, as well as being a wonderful performer and, you know, he was a very fine composer and, um, he, he you know, he liked to explore the boundaries. Um, and, um, you know, I think he just really, he was really excited to be, you know, working with them but i think what's really striking as well is that in the collaborations he's playing indian music basically he might be using he might be playing along with yehuda menuhin but menuhin menuhin's playing indian music Ravi isn't trying to play 
Bartok or you know some other Western classical music. And similarly, when he writes um, uh, sitar for uh, a concerto for sitar and orchestra in 1971, um, the, the first of three that he wrote, um, he's really using the orchestra to play Indian music. So, you know, I talk about him wanting to push the boundaries, but he sort of sets his own boundaries within that. He wants, he, you know, he wants to, he's a real proselytizer for Indian music. That's his main thing. Um, and then he just loves exploring it with these other musicians and people like Menuhin and uh, Philip Glass and George Harrison, um, Zubin Mehta, the conductor. Uh, so, the, you know, I think that's his main feeling. But the, I think that what happened, you know, he also had um, this yeah, discomfort that you talk about. I think that's more to do with the when he felt that Indian music was getting misrepresented or Indian culture was getting misrepresented. Uh, I don't think it's really about the collaborations that he um, that he embarked on. I, I, I think it's, you know, it, particularly in the late 60s, Indian music starts to become associated with uh, drugs, for example. That was a big thing for him. He just didn't want that. That was not, that was not his approach. And he was very clear in telling his audience and his, his, his new uh, students in the West that that was, you know, the wrong approach to the music. Um, and, you know, it just all goes a bit out of control, really. You know, this, you know, it's a massive, well, you know, Western fad for a few years. And I think that left him feeling uncomfortable that, you know, that he, he wasn't, you know, he realized he couldn't control what people were saying about India. And he was getting this kind of um, flack back at home from people who were all too happy to kind of blame him for uh, these misrepresentations that are going on. So I, th I think that's where the, the discomfort arises from. And I think it is important, and it's important to understanding him, because, you know, he was, he was really, really trying very hard to present Indian music, Indian classical music, in the correct light, and finding that, you, you, you know, that it, that it was being distorted was, you know, it, just, it was kind of torturing to him, really. And then, you know, I think that, uh, you know, and he was a kind of, he could, he could be a warrior as well. You know, he was a very charismatic, uh, likable person. But I think that he spent a lot of time worrying about this kind of stuff and kind of came to the conclusion, which was probably right, that was that he should not be playing places like uh, Woodstock anymore, that he should go back to classical concert halls. And uh, that was his core audience. And um, that's what he did. And he actually did it very successfully, you know, from the mid-70s onwards. So, so, so you note that um, Ravi Shankar was a bit of a warrior. I mean, you you got to meet him personally. Um, what was he yeah. like in person, and did it differ from his public persona or stage presence or how the press might might present him? Yeah, I I, I was very lucky. I, I spent a lot of time with him. Um, first of all, as you mentioned, I worked with him on on his, what was his last autobiography um, as his editor and. And then uh, we, we, after that, we maintained our relationship um, for the rest of his life, right up till he died in 2012. And um, so, yeah, I, I was lucky to get all his access. And he was a, you know, he had a, you know, he had a great warmth and a charisma around him. There was something of an aura about him, but it was not intimidating. It was just very, very impressive. Um, he he was attentive, and he kind of made you feel important. 
Um, and also he was a lot of fun. You know, there was a sort of playfulness to him that really comes across, I think, a lot in his public um, persona. I think his public persona is sort of, you know, it had... It has different aspects. I think people uh, recognise this kind of like um, um, serious kind of uh, spiritual as well kind of figure. Um, but then there's also this sort of great playfulness when you would see him in interview or, you know, he had the most wonderful laugh that could, you know, um, lift your spirits. So I, I think he combined these different aspects. And, and I think that was really important to his 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 success as well, you know, that he he was great at relating to people. He had a, you know, he was likable, um, uh, and and you know had this gift of communicating to a mass audience. He was very good at presentation, but he combined that with this sort of incredible deep knowledge and skill and feeling for music. And you know, this is a great combination of skills to have, you know, and and I think that is part of what explains why he was such a um, a a sort of uh, groundbreaking, barrier-breaking um, person for Indian music, you know, rather than anyone else. So I'd, I'd like to go a bit broader now in talking about Indian music. Um, and I guess my question is, how important has Indian music been and musicians like Ravi Shankar to the idea of, you know, Indian quote-unquote soft power? Um, to India's, you know, kind of acting as a, a as a cultural power, um, and yeah, so 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 things like India's soft power. How how important has Indian music and people like Ravi Shankar been to promoting that and supporting that? I think it was very important in that period, especially um, after Indian independence. Um, you know, the Indian government um, of the uh, late forties and the fifties, I think, understood this. I think. You know, Nehru, the first prime minister of of India, um, uh, did quite a lot to set up support for artists, um, uh, and you know that continued. I think I think there was an understanding that India didn't have uh, the sort of hard power that uh, that you know that some of um, the other countries did. You know, countries like America or or, or, or Russia, or, uh, and and I think that they that they understood that they could. They could gain influence by, by um, the example of their, for example, their artists and so on. And of course, the, you know, the great figure in that was was Gandhi, the Mahatma, who uh, gave India this this, this huge soft power. Um, but it did continue, I think, in the attitude to artists. And I, you know, I think Ravi Shankar is very, very important in that. You know, and that so many people uh, from the fifties onwards would have experienced um, their first idea of India. Through him, or through Indian music, or through Indian dance, or uh, maybe a, a film that had a score by Ravi Shankar, such as Patha Panchali, you know, the the Opu trilogy of Satyajit Ray, um, he was at the centre of so many of these, um, um, you know, sort of early encounters that people had. So I think it's very important. I think it's probably Indian music. Classical music is probably less important today. Um, you know, you know, it's changed. I think these days, probably Indian soft power is more exercised through, I don't know, cricket and Bollywood and and, and so on. But it's still there. I think it's still really important. It's, it's a, you know, it's a representation of serious culture. Uh, you know, a, a classical art form. Uh, I think it's important still. 
Okay, so I think one one final question before before we wrap. Um, if someone were to start exploring Ravi Shankar's repertoire, uh, where should they start? Well, it's a good question because um, he worked across such a range of, uh, of different music. He, although, as I, as I was saying, he, he stuck to Indian ragas and talas. There's a, you know, you have the solo sistar works, you have Indian ensemble works, you've got Western orchestral works, you've got vocal music, um, the chants of India, as I mentioned. You've got film music. He did a lot of work in the theatre as well, which I haven't talked about. Uh, he was a great. He loved dance and he loved writing music for. Indian ballets and such like. So there's a lot there. Um, uh, specific pieces I would talk about. I mean, there's a great album from 19... He recorded in 61 called Improvisations that has um, uh, just a wonderful example of his solo sitar playing plus a, you know, uh, about three other pieces in different styles, um, including the film score from Pathup and Charlie and, and a piece that he wrote for jazz musicians as well, American jazz musicians. In Indian, in Indian ragas and talas. Um, so that's a good album. Um, I love some of his later vocal works, like Shanti Mantra, uh, Prabhuji, uh, and Prashanti from the album he did with Philip Glass, Passages. So there's, those are a few specific examples I'd recommend. Um, I've, I've done my own playlist um, uh, connected with the book, which um, has more. It's got about 15 different tracks on it, which... Um, uh, it's a Spotify playlist, uh, which perhaps perhaps you can make that um, available on your show notes if, if that's of interest to you. I, I most certainly will. Um, so with that, uh, thank you for listening to our interview with Oliver Krask about his book, Indian Sun, The Life and Music of Ravi Shankar. Uh, Oliver, one actual last question. Right. Um, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Um, the book is available. Uh, it's published uh, in, at the moment in English only, but it's available in India, in UK, America, um, all, you know, all over the world in English language outlets. Um, the moment you'd mostly probably be ordering online because of um, uh, the pandemic, but it's uh, it, it's it's there. It's called Indian Sun, as I said. Uh, there's an audio book of it as well. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I hope people will um, be keen to explore it. Uh, I don't actually know what I'm writing next. I'm, I'm working on some ideas. He's a very hard act to follow, Ravi Shankar. Uh, he had such a rich life. Um, and um, uh, I was so closely connected to him that uh, um, I've not quite found my subject yet, but um, I'm looking. Well, I, I, I look forward to learning what your next subject is. Um, so... You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's, book, that, that's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you subscribe and continue listening to the Asian Review of Books podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Dexter Roberts, author of The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, The Factory, and The Future of the World. But before that, 
Oliver, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Nicholas. It's great to talk to you.